Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, a clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic and the president of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice in which we learn about updates in laboratory testing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, Bill, it's great to have you back. Um, I'm back as well. We've both been on a, a one-week vacation. It's nice to kind of just rest and uh, refresh ourselves a bit. So yeah. did you have a nice week away? I did. It was, well, you know, for those of us in this part of the country, uh, it was unusually cool. I was in northern Minnesota, and it was actually below freezing. And so it was interesting to see what's happening in other parts of the country where clearly they, their weather situation is a lot different. And uh, my heart really goes out. I have a lot of friends and family in the Northwest and seeing what's happening there is pretty tough. Uh, but actually it was kind of an interesting time because I, not just for me, but my sense is that as a nation and really globally, we're kind of now stepping back. Vaccines are, are being more and more talked about. It's sort of like everyone after the push through the surge in the U.S. through the summer, everyone took Labor Day week to kind of take a deep breath. And now it's kind of looking forward and trying to figure out what the fall is going to look like with kids going back to school and other things like that. Yeah, I think that's great to kind of frame this and looking forward, you know, how are we going to approach this upcoming season? So what are you hearing, Bill, about COVID testing in general? Well, it's very interesting, right? I, people are really trying to take the lessons learned from the summer and apply them here in the fall in terms of a lot of groups uh, and coalitions that are looking for ways to get better access of PCR testing to people who need it. So really, we now have a lot more in-lab capacity for COVID testing, but still the concerns about how do we get it to the right people. Uh, we've seen sort of a drop-off in demand, but there's concerns for another surge. It's going to be there really until we either get herd immunity or we get a vaccine. And the other piece of that too is now there's all these other tools that are coming out. So Abbott had the announcement of their Binax antigen test as a lateral flow. So there's a lot of questions about what are the testing tools that we have? How do we make sure people have access to them? And then even more importantly, how do we use them? Because now we're talking not just about diagnosing people with COVID, which is really the, the focus has been through the summer, but now how do we actually manage COVID through testing? And that involves a lot of different things, including not just confirmatory testing clinically, but screening and surveillance testing as well. Yeah, that's a really good point, Bill. And of course, we have a number of tools. Like you said, we now have a, a sensitive rapid antigen test. We have some other antigen tests. We have alternate specimen types that we've been seeing more and more that might be a little easier to collect if you're going to use it for something like screening and surveillance. So maybe yeah. that would be worth talking a little bit about. I think there's some confusion about the differences with screening and surveillance. And I notice that people use those terms incorrectly, interchangeably. Great for you, because you're the expert here, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, <laughs> of the two of us in terms of the, you know, the use of these tests for infectious disease and pathogen detection. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts about the yeah. differences between surveillance and screening, for instance, and how these different tests might be put together? Yeah, I'd be happy to talk about it, Bill. You know, I've been giving a lot of thought to this. So screening and surveillance are both approaches you could use to monitor disease, in this case, COVID, in a population or a specific group of individuals. But in general, 
screening is really performed for an individual and the results are given to that individual or used in the healthcare of that individual, whereas surveillance is really performed on a population basis and the results are not given to the individuals. So, you know, when we think of sending our kids back to school or going to college or testing people on a routine basis, like at our skilled care facilities, that would be an example of screening. And you know, often it's performed on a routine or a repeat basis, for example, every week some colleges are talking about testing their students. And that's where I think it's really nice that we have some of these really easily collected samples because you wouldn't necessarily want your college kids, well, they wouldn't necessarily want a, a nasal pharyngeal swab once a week, that you're gonna get a lot of protest and pushback on that. Yeah. Um, but the idea is that these are asymptomatic people you're using this on a regular basis with repeat testing, you're more likely to catch those positive cases. And then you can have actionable results where you quarantine them, keep them from classes. Although I did just see in the news that not every positive kid is actually staying home, but that's a whole mm -hmm. different issue. So that's really your screening test, whereas surveillance is really more something our public health labs tend to do, where you're monitoring positivity in a whole community or a population, as I said before, where you're not linking the results to an individual. And so an example of that would be if a public health facility wanted to do testing to test randomly selected 1% uh, of their individuals on a weekly basis just to see what their community prevalence is. And it's interesting because from a surveillance standpoint, that testing can actually be performed outside of a CLIA certified laboratory. Yeah, interesting. Well, actually, that's really helpful because I'm a sports fan. People <laughs> some know I'm on sports radio now with regularity. It was interesting to watch the NFL yesterday and to see in most of the markets that those stadiums were completely empty. The pushback that we're feeling societally, is that really the appropriate step? Thinking about how these interplay, if you're in an area where the disease prevalence is very high, which is more of a surveillance thing, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of active disease. You don't want people getting together. Whereas if you're in an area with not very many people have it, you might be able to screen individuals and safely allow some level of congregation, like a, like a dispersed crowd, a one-third crowd at a sporting event. So I think this is really, it sounds very academic, but the screening versus surveillance is really what's probably going to be the two things that are in the balance, as I'm using my hands here and people can't see it, to say how open can we be in terms of going back, which is what everybody wants, and how do you put these together? And also it really is interesting because people will hear about some testing, which is probably gonna make them scratch their heads. Uh, one that's getting more and more press is the actually testing of sewage material. Mm -hmm. um, and clearly that's aggregated data, if you wanna look at it that way. But it's the data, <laughs> that, that's one yes. of the thoughts actually, is that this is a, this is a way to monitor for prevalence, mm -hmm. um, is to look at things like waste um, to see how, how much positivity there is. So, so it's gonna be a very interesting dynamic. Most importantly for you and I, is, and for the people listening, is that gonna be continued engagement from the laboratory to explain how these things work. Because now you're gonna have a lot more variables because you have two different applications which are different and you have more test types which are different. So, you know, some of the screening tests will be convenient but they not, might be as sensitive. Um, so how that may, they might speak to how often you have to do one or until there's a vaccine or treatment, it's gonna to have to drive to your point individual behavior.
right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's still, that's still where we are in terms of managing this is with contact tracing, screening, isolation, and contact tracing is sort of the bread and butter of managing a spread of an outbreak. So just really interesting stuff. Yeah, really nicely said too, though. I think uh, your example of how surveillance and screening fit together was really nice on this topic because yes, you need to know what your percent positivity or the prevalence of the diseases in the community, but that could be done by surveillance testing, even by testing sewage treatment, I guess, if you just want to see like, are you still having positive cases in your society? But then how can you actually use that to guide your screening program? So yeah, as yeah. I've said multiple times, it's one more tool in our COVID toolbox. Indeed, and there's actually groups that I think people should know, uh, again, mentioned that I've been involved in some other work with the World Economic Forum and some others. So there's actually groups in the US and abroad that are actually using mathematical modeling to look at prevalence. So that would be surveillance versus screening and how they go together. Because at some point, it only stands to reason that if the prevalence is so high, then you don't really need to screen because the chances are is that if so many people are positive, the reality is that it's just not safe for people to get together, right? Mm -hmm. Flip side is if it's so low, it might be get to the point where those really convenient tests that people, students can do aren't that helpful because you're really now trying to find a needle in a haystack. So having a less sensitive test isn't gonna help you for that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different things that are gonna really be continued to be confusing, I think, and challenging for people to understand because it's gonna affect their daily lives and what people are saying they can and can't do. I agree completely. Well, great discussion as always, Val. Yep. Sure, well, it's great to be back. Um, yes, and the leaves are turned. It was, it was my first time in northern Minnesota once we got a couple of frosts and the leaves started to turn. They actually got uh, to stare. They're not on the trees very long once they do it. It's really it's beautiful. spectacular. Not Vermont, perhaps, where you're from, but it's still yeah. pretty spectacular. It's, it's still beautiful. It's beautiful in Wisconsin, too. So I hope folks are getting out there and uh, safely distancing and uh, enjoying the great outdoors and seeing the colors change for those of our listeners who... Uh, live in the northern parts of the country. Yep, and if there's any listeners in the Northwest or California, uh, our hearts do go out to you. And our thoughts are with them. Our thoughts and prayers are with you and, and as you deal with the devastating fires in your communities. Thanks, Bill. Until next week. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.